This week's episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure that every surface is clean and sanitary, bust out the cleaner and sanitizers with professional power and home brewer safety. Making better beer with better chemistry? Choose Craftmeister. And by Brewcraft USA. Want to make the jump to all-grain brewing but don't want to spend thousands of dollars? Brewcraft USA has the answer for you. The five-gallon grainfather system lets you mash, sparge, boil, and chill with its all-in-one design. Available exclusively where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship any amount anywhere in the USA. And with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his kilt. Sports fans, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars. Which will be out in May, so watch for it. Well, now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. So on today's episode, uh, we're going to get started with the beer life and talk a little bit about the looming decline of homebrewing and what it means for our favorite hobby. All right, and then after we're done with the beer life, we're going to get on to what I think is uh, arguably one of the biggest purposes of this podcast, and we're going to talk about our experimentation program as we're going to start getting into our efforts to explore the wackiness of beer science and the science of beer wackiness. So it's going to be time to break out your brew kettles and, and brew along with our Igors. Yeah, and that's really uh, one of the things that this show is all about. So we hope that you guys will uh, participate in these experiments so that we can share the wisdom. Well, and then after we're done talking about experimentation, we're going to bring you the first of what we hope is a really great series of segments of interviews with brewers from around the Bay Area. Denny and I just got a chance to go out to San Francisco, and we're going to start off this episode with Jay Goodwin of the Rare Barrel in Berkeley. It was it was so much fun, and we got so much great information, and we're so grateful to these guys for sharing their time with us. We'll tell you a little bit more about it uh, before that, that segment comes up. All right, and then finally, we're going to hit you with another round of Ask Denny and Drew before we finally close out the show with our quick tip of the week that's coming from Denny this time, so maybe it'll be useful to you. <laughs> or maybe not. Okay, we want to let you know that you can support us on Patreon, which is a, a website that lets you contribute uh, whatever amount you think uh, our show is worth, and hopefully you'll give us more than that. Uh, look for Experimental Brewing. Now, what do we do with the money that you give us? Well, we fund our podcasts. Believe me, uh, we're not getting rich, and it takes money to produce these. Uh, we fund our experiments, the experiments of our Igors, and uh, a charity of uh, choice. But it's not our choice. It's your choice what charity we're going to fund. 
Help us decide where a portion of our proceeds should go. Go to experimentalbrew.com and leave a suggestion in our charity topic on the front page. We'll be announcing our charity choice in a few episodes, so get out there, give us your thoughts, and don't forget to throw us a bone at Patreon. All right, and hey, don't forget, if you have a question, a comment, or any other thing that you want us to read on air, within reason, uh, send us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and who knows, maybe your feedback will end up here. And we'll be back in just a minute, sitting in at the Experimental Brewing Pub, having a beer, and talking about the beer life. Drew and I are sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub having a beer. Uh, Drew, what are you drinking there today? Uh, today, I decided to go with what you had last time and have a Duval. Uh, always a good choice. Always a good choice. I'm drinking an ill-tempered gnome from Oakshire. I tell you, I love this stuff. It's their winter beer. I wait all year long for this beer to come out, and uh, it's it's time for it now. So, wait, uh, hey, Denny, uh, how many beers has Oakshire named after you? <laughs> yeah, right. I guess that does kind of fit, huh? That's kind of scary. Anyway, today uh, our topic on the beer life is homebrew in decline, and I'm real interested to hear what Drew has to say about this. All right, well, so no big surprise here. Uh, I'm on the HA Governing Committee. I'm actually the vice chairman. Ooh, I'm very important, right? Um, How much vice it, are you in charge of? All the vice. All right. All right. So, one of the things that the HA has been uh, heavily focused on is obviously the health of the homebrew hobby and uh, the health of homebrew retailers. And so, for the past couple of years, they've been tracking and talking with retailers and working and coordinating with them about all the stuff that's going on in the homebrew industry. And, you know, we've talked uh, in the past about, hey, you know, we're in this period of unprecedented growth, and, you know, homebrewing's exploding, craft beer's exploding. Everything is exploding, and it's going to be a giant mess to clean up. And it turns out that now, at least in looking at the the surveys that we do every year, uh, it looks like we may now be on the point of having to clean up the mess. Uh, namely, what we're seeing is retailers, your homebrew shop, your big uh, homebrew stores that are out there, are all reporting in that they're seeing a decline in sales. Now, in about the past year, what we had started to see was sales were flattening. And that means, uh, you know, they weren't getting increasing numbers of sales, but they were still holding steady at the same level. But we're now actually seeing where the numbers are showing an actual decline. Now, and why, why is that worrying for us, Drew? Well, the, the big worry about it is, you know, if retailers are showing a decline, and particularly, say, like your mom and pop stores, which are also showing a, a, which are one of the segments that are showing decline, that means that your local homebrew shop is in risk of going out of business. Well, why does that matter to me? Well, because your local homebrew shop is the people who are there for you, and they are also the people who do things like sponsor your homebrew clubs and really provide a physical center point for a lot of the homebrew activity that, that's out there in America. Uh, and, I mean, this is, you know, this is the place where you can run and go get your ingredients. This is, for me at least... I came to the realization years ago that I like hanging out at the homebrew shop in the same way that you could argue my father and my grandfather probably liked hanging around the, the hardware store around a bucket of nails drinking bad coffee. 
<laughs> so now you can hang out at the homebrew store and drink bad beer. Is that what you're saying? Well, one would hope that we're drinking better beer than bad <laughs> coffee, but point still stands. Yeah, it, it really does, man. And, uh, you know, even if you don't have a local homebrew store, even if you have to order your stuff from somewhere else, this can still affect you. Because if there are less people brewing, then uh, it's quite likely that uh, whatever store you get your stuff from will end up carrying less stock, too. So it, it, there are some issues there. Well, and then naturally the question is, okay, so what's, what's driving the decline? Um, one thing that we know about homebrewing uh, is that homebrewing seems to be very cyclical in nature. The last time we saw a real boom and bust was uh, back in 96, and it took us a while to recover. And a lot of times it actually seems to be tied to the, to the economy. Uh, so whenever the economy takes a, a bit of a nosedive, people start to get more interested in doing handmade crafts. Uh, you know, hey, I want that luxury good of a good beer, but I don't want to go out and pay $900,000 for a six-pack. So I'll go and spend $800,000 on homebrew equipment and spend my time uh, making it. So one with an improved economy, it always seems to be that we get a decreased interest in the hobby. Uh, the other thing that's driving the lower income to a retail store is the rise of the one-gallon kit. You know, and that's something I've just noticed at uh, my local homebrew store. I was in there yesterday, and uh, I had not seen him selling one-gallon uh, kits before, at least of equipment. And uh, sure enough, now he is. So it, that's definitely happening. Well, and you think about one-gallon kits are, from a consumer's point of view, they're wonderful. They're perfectly sensible, right? You know. It's a lower cost entry into the market. It requires less room. It requires less equipment. You can do it on your stovetop pretty easily. Uh, it's appealing to a lot of people because it's also not moving around five gallons of potentially deadly liquid. Um, yeah, it's it's just a lot a lot easier from a consumer's point of view to deal with a one gallon kit. There are downsides, obviously. Like, hey, uh, I forget what you make a little more than a six pack out of a one gallon kit, but it still takes you pretty close to the same amount of time. Uh, but from a retailer's point of view, one-gallon kits are fairly deadly because of that lower cost, right? You don't have people buying nearly as many ingredients. The equipment's not as expensive. And instead of getting that higher investment cost from a first-time buyer, you get a much lower investment cost. Now, hopefully you have people sticking with the hobby and, and upgrading five gallons or upgrading to additional equipment to you know, kind of capture those downstream revenues. But you're still missing out on that initial big hit of money. So what about, what about the ready availability and increasing amount of craft beer, which is a term that I, after last week I swore I wasn't going to say, but it, that's what everybody else calls it. So what about that? Does that have an effect? Absolutely. And I always joke that here in L.A., where I live, that homebrewing was a defensive art you had to you know we didn't have access to stone we didn't have access to a lot of good breweries until uh a few years ago we really had access to uh craftsmen and beers from other cities uh so homebrewing here was defensive if i wanted to have good locally crafted beer i had to make it myself but now i'm looking around and breweries are opening so fast i can't keep track of them there's all this good beer that's on the market now that comes from local mom-and-pop stores or uh, local mom-and-pop breweries. Uh, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of beer out there to support and a lot of people that I want to you know, kind of give my love to. And as we've joked before, I think we're rapidly reaching a point where the people who would be long-term interested homebrewers, all of them are opening up breweries now. 
uh, leaving you and I to be the last remaining vanguard of homebrewers who Yay. Go, yeah, who don't want to ruin a perfectly good hobby. Yeah, really, man. I've done that too many times. There is no way you could ever get me to open a brewery, work in a brewery, or do anything closer to that than what I'm doing now, which is driving the short bus. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're brewery adjacent. So, yeah, the the rise of good craft beer or the rise of uh, good locally made beer certainly has an impact on it because you reduce the amount of defensiveness. Uh, and it's kind of unfortunate because there's always been that sort of symbiotic relationship, right? Uh, homebrewers feeding into the craft beer market, craft brewers feeding the, the homebrew market, knowledge transfer back and forth, and now it seems like we've just reached a point where there's enough on the craft beer side where you're losing a lot of people who might otherwise be interested. Yeah. And then, and let's also face it, I mean, there's a natural ebb and flow to a Sure. Hop. Yeah. Just like everything else, it's cyclical. Cyclical. Yeah. There, I can, I can maybe say that. Cyclical, cyclical, cyclical. Uh, show somewhere. off. Show off. So, so what? What is there a solution to this problem, or do we just wait for it to run its course? It's a, a little bit of that, uh, but one thing the HA is already doing something where they have this retailer group that's reaching out and doing all these surveys and discovering what's happening in the market. And to anyone who's out there thinking, hey, you know, they're just probably buying all their ingredients online. Turns out that one of the things coming out of the numbers is that even your online shops are seeing this decline now. But what's really cool is that now with the HA retailer group being there, there is a group that can strategize and sort of get this information out ahead of time to shops so they can make defensive changes to what they're doing. So, for instance, proposals are are out there to, hey, how to improve the presentation of your shop, improve the ingredients, improve your profit margin, do all these things that uh, in good times people didn't necessarily have to focus on because the money was just coming in. So right. that's there, and that's awesome. But that's not something that you or I or Joe, uh, Joe and Jane Homebrew can do. Now, it seems like from our point of view, the solution is easy. Uh, support your local homebrew shop and brew more beer, right? Yeah, and this is – that support your local homebrew shop is the big key. Now, I know there are going to be people out there, oh, my local homebrew shop sucks. Okay, well, if your local homebrew shop sucks, fine. You have my permission not to support them. Well, and there – there are a lot of people who don't have home, local homebrew shops to go to, too, man. I mean, you and I are in a fortunate position, but uh, if, if people living uh, in the middle of nowhere, even more so than I do, uh, may not have any uh, option but to uh, order their stuff uh, via the Internet. Hmm? I, I agree. But again, if you have a local homebrew shop and they're decent people, please, for the love of all that's good and beery, support them. Uh, and that means... Forego those special deals that you can find sometimes where you can go and buy a sack of grain for half the price it would cost you to get at your local homebrew shop. Uh, stop you know, finding everything via Amazon and actually go in to the, to the homebrew stop, uh, shop and buy, buy your parts. Uh, believe it or not, I mean, your, your contributions can actually help and keep the store open. Right. Uh, also, I would say, uh, you know, take a look at what your shop's offering and encourage them to grow and expand the programs that they're offering to uh, brewers. All these shops are going to have to start getting people involved, and they're going to have to start getting new brewers in. That's the main way that these shops survive is they need new blood. Because, again, the big, the big profit point for any homebrew store 
is not when they go and sell you a pound of grain or a pound of extract. It's not even when they sell you a, a case of bottles. It's when they get you to buy that starter kit, those kettles, the fermenters, all the equipment. That's their profit point. Right. So right. if you have your eye on like one of those shiny Blickman kettles, uh, don't go and buy it through you know a big store or or you know online if your local shop has it. Yeah, go and get go and throw them a little bit of a uh, spare cabbage. Right. Yeah, and uh, my my local shop has just been really expanding its inventory. I was, when, again when I was in there yesterday, I was surprised at the amount of stuff that that guy has now. So uh, as that happens, you're going to see less and less need to actually order it via the mail unless you don't have physical access to a homebrew shop. So. Anyway, I hear it's about time for some experiments. I think so. Well, why don't we get out of here and let's go back to the lab. Okay, I'm going to suck down this beer, see in the lab. That's right, Woodchuck Chuckers, it's experimentation day. Ooh, boy. Yeah, time to get your mad scientist on. It's our first experiment that we're going to do. Uh, Denny's going to lead us through the experiment real quick, but I'm going to preface this by giving you all a little note. The very first experiment that we're doing here on experimental brewing is going to be a simple one. And I can hear some people going, well, that's kind of boring. But remember, we're new at this in terms of trying to do big collaborative group experiments. Denny and I do a lot of experiments, but we do them on our own. So this experiment is going to be simple so that we can learn how to coordinate and that everybody else can come along with us and learn how to experiment in the way that we want to uh, pursue this knowledge. So with that said, Denny, why don't you walk people through our first experiment? Okay, so basically what we're going to do is uh, test the well-worn theory that uh, Y-Yeast 1056 uh, makes the same beer in terms of flavor as White Labs WLP 001. Uh, it's pretty commonly acknowledged that these two yeasts came from the same uh, source originally, but they uh, probably have diverged. They may have diverged in the time since then, so uh, they may not be exact equivalents for each other. So here's the deal. The question that we're looking at is, are there detectable differences between Y-Yeast 1056 and White Labs WLP-001 when fermented in the same wort at the same temperature. Remember those sames. The hypothesis that we're working with is that there are small but detectable changes between the yeast strains. This is going to take one brewing session for you, and you'll brew a batch of wort and split it into two fermenters. Now, you can brew five gallons and split it two and a half, two and a half. You can make ten gallons, split it five and five. You can make a hundred gallons, split it fifty-fifty. But the important thing is that you split that and then do an evaluation through a blind triangle test. The other thing that's going to be very important in this is to, as precisely as we can in the homebrew world, figure out how to pitch equal amounts of yeast into each half of that word. Uh, and that's that's where uh, some of your skill is really going to come into play here. All right, and let's talk about the, uh, the recipe real quick. Uh, this will be a sort of cornerstone recipe that we're going to use a lot here on experimental brewing because it's going to be fairly neutral and allow us to explore a lot of characters without getting in the way. 
it also has the advantage of being a fairly tasty beer uh, that I've made a lot. And the name the name of the recipe is you'll see it uh, listed in the book and multiple places. It's my Magnum Blonde, sometimes called my California Magnum. And this is the recipe for five gallons. It comes in at about a 1048, 1047 OG. Uh, the big version of it has a. Uh, this version has about 45 IBUs, so it's about equal OG to, to IBUs, and it's really pale as about 3.4 SRM. Uh, recipe couldn't be any any simpler if we tried. For every five-gallon portion, it's nine and a half pounds of pale malt. Uh, when I first did this recipe, the reason why it was called California Magnum, it used Great Western California Selecturo, uh, but feel free to use any neutral American or domestic-style two-row malt that you have. Very simple single infusion mash, 152 degrees for 60 minutes, full conversion. And then 0.7 ounces of magnum pellets at about 11.6% uh, alpha acid for 60 minutes. And another 0.7 ounces for 20 minutes. And that's it. And then for this particular experiment, we're doing two yeast strains. We're doing our White Labs 001 California Ale and our Y-Yeast 1056 American Ale. And let me just say here real quick that uh, if you didn't catch all that recipe, if you weren't ready to write down what Drew was saying, it will be on our website at experimentalbrew.com, uh, as well as the experimental parameters, so you can always go there and check it out. So, Denny, you want to walk them through the procedure? For this experiment, you're in luck because we don't need to make yeast starters for a 1047 beer. Uh, a Y-yeast uh, activator pack or a, uh, a White Labs vial should have plenty of cells for this beer. So just make sure that you get those date codes matched as closely as possible when you buy your yeast. Then you brew enough of the Magnum Blonde wort to split evenly between two fermenters. Like I said, you can make five gallons and split it uh, into two two-and-a-half-gallon batches, whatever way you want to go. Ferment both batches under exactly the same conditions. Put them in the same space. Uh, make sure that the temperature is the same. Use the same f type of fermenter on both of them. If you're using a bucket for one, use a bucket for the other one, not a carboy. Uh, you know, don't use one conical and one carboy. We want to keep all the variables to a minimum as much as possible. So after f um, the fermentation subsides, record how long it went on, and the final gravity of each beer. Package the two beers in exactly the same manner, whether it's kegging, bottling, whatever. Make sure that they're exactly the same. Uh, let them uh, age for the same amount of time, and make sure you record your packaging methodology. Then it's uh, the time you have some friends over, and you do a triangle test. You pour them uh, two glasses of one of the beers and one of the other and ask them if one of the beers is different from the other ones. Uh, I would not even say to them one of these beers is different. Just ask them if they perceive that one of the beers is different. Uh, find out which one it is um, and then record their observations about the samples. Now, if people haven't been able to uh, pick out the beer that's different, then obviously their uh, observations may not make a lot of difference to us. But still, ask everybody to write down whatever they think. Real quick, uh, talking about some of this, remember that with a triangle test, 
the idea is everybody should be served the same beers in the same order for your test. It doesn't matter, you know, if everybody across this whole experimental group gets everything in the same, but just as long as you're doing it the same for everybody. And remember, no information about the beers beforehand. Just drop the beers in front of people and say, okay, guys, you got three samples. Uh, which one's the different one? Keep the glasses the same. You know, mark them with uh, circle, triangle, square. Yeah, you know, some innocuous marker that doesn't imply any sort of ordering. So no A, B, C, one, two, three. Right. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, just get it in front of them. And ideally, ideally, you're not the one doing this. Ideally, you're sitting there along with your tasting panel tasting and somebody else like your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your domestic partner of choice or a very highly intelligent and well-trained dog is the one choosing which uh, beers are being poured in which glasses and serving to them so that you don't even know which which one is which in front of people. Right. And when you get uh, done with that triangle tasting, email your results to experiment at experimentalbrew.com. We'll tabulate them, and uh, a few months down the road, we will give you the results. Sorry, guys, this is not a week-long experiment. It's going to take a while. Uh, well, and this is going to be a relatively short one compared to some of the ones that we have coming up. But we are going to try and turn the results around as quickly as possible. And if you didn't catch all the details of the experiment, don't worry. The experimental details will all be up on experimentalbrew.com. Uh, you'll be able to see the experiment there. And if I can get off my butt and do my IT wizard work, I'll actually put together an online collection form so that you can submit your results that way. Ooh, he's so good. We're going to take a break here, grab another beer, and when we come back, we'll tell you all about our trip to San Francisco. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Okay, so thanks to our sponsor, Craftmeister, Drew and I uh, just visited the San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley Bay Area. Uh, We took advantage of that trip to meet with some uh, interesting beer personalities around the area. And we're going to be playing some of those interviews for you over the course of the next few episodes. Uh, And I just would also like to uh, thank all the fine folks at More Beer for their hospitality when we were doing book signings there, too. Great bunch of people. Now, about these interviews, uh, remember that they are being done live and in the field, and they sound pretty darn good, but they don't sound like the studio, so just don't let that throw you. Uh, Think of it just as like the atmosphere. You can almost smell the beer in the recordings, right? Absolutely. And too bad that, uh, too bad people weren't actually having the beers we were having because oh, God, oh boy. Really? oh man all right so now for our first Bay area interview uh, we got a chance to sit down with Jay Goodwin of uh, Berkeley's rare barrel uh, I would argue that they are one of the world's most exciting places for uh, sour beer as it's being done nowadays uh, so let's go ahead and here's what ha- hear what happens when you combine Diddy and I Jay Goodwin some amazing sour beer and a working brewery all around our little tiny microphones. The Rare Barrel has been in existence. We started building out in 2012. 
It's, it's, there's no exact date, so bear, yeah, with, right. bear, bear with me. So we built out the space in 2012, brewed our first batch in February of 2013. And, you know, as an all-sour brewery, it takes a little while for that first batch to come out. So we started to release a little bit of draft around uh, fall, um, winter, and then we officially opened up in our tasting room December 27th, 2013. So it's over a full year from, you know, when we were wow. starting out, and especially with the long wait time of our uh, barrel aged sours, it's it was tough. So, I was trying to remember. Did you guys start off with other wort? Yeah, we're yeah. still doing it right now, actually. Can you say who produces the wort? Or sure, yeah, we've worked with um, a bunch of different breweries across the Bay Area. We're mainly focused on working with uh, Heretic Brewing Company mm-hmm. right now up in Fairfield. So, all right, everybody, uh, we're currently sitting in a back office hidden away amongst a bunch of barrels uh, over the Rare Barrel in Berkeley, and we're currently sitting here with Jay, and we're drinking, uh, what was the name of the beer again? Uh, Map of the Sun. Map of the Sun and a sour apricot ale. Yep, golden sour aged in oak barrels with apricot. Yeah. Damn good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this gets uh, one of my highest versions of praise, which is uh, it doesn't suck. It doesn't suck. Awesome. <laughs> but, uh, and I was just thinking, you guys actually have kind of an advantage since you're working in sort of this nebulous space inside and outside of style that you can kind of, well, it ended up a little bit darker, but who's to say it's not what it should be? Sure, yeah. I think we're we look at what we're doing is we're making American sour beer, which isn't really a category, which kind of allows us to make just what we think is the best beers possible. So we have weird ingredients. We have our our base recipes that kind of build towards different fermentations, and then that build towards the use of all these weird ingredients and barrels. So it's it's a fun, fun space to be in when, even though we're limited by being an all-sour brewery, that constraint actually breeds a lot of creativity. We may stretch out you know, farther than a lot of other people would inside of the context of just making sour beer. All right, and Jay, could you uh, real quick uh, introduce yourself to the audience who may not know who you are? Yeah, I'm Jay Goodwin. I'm one of the co-founders of The Rare Barrel, which is an all-sour brewery here in Berkeley, California. Um, been brewing sour beer for seven or eight years now. I used to work at uh, the brewery in Orange County. Um, my last job there was managing the, the barrel program. When I left, I think it was, I left them with 1,500 oak barrels, and now they're about 3,300, 3, the biggest I, barrel aging programs in the I country. I think they're taking over that whole business park by now. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, the whole city of Placentia is a brewery, you know, barrel warehouse. <laughs> hey, they, they could have a, a far worse uh, gig than to be that. All right. Uh, and you also uh, host your own podcast, right? That's right. We just had an episode last night. Uh, it's called the Sour Hour uh, on the Brewing Network, and meet about once a month. Talk for about two hours, actually. Now it's developed into more than an hour. Uh, it's a lot of guests just talking about sour beer. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Next question. We're going to get a little bit James Lipton up in here. Okay. What's your favorite curse word? Uh, fuck. I think that's. That's, know, a, that's a good standard one. That's a, if, an American classic. If it didn't exist, then, I mean, shit, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, let's uh, let's get down to the brass tacks on biography. Uh, when did you first really discover good beer? 
Uh, it was in college. You know, I was drinking a lot of beer in college. Doesn't make it that different from today, but um, we were lucky enough to uh, uh, Alex Wallace, my one of my other co-founders, and I were roommates in uh, college at UC Santa Barbara. And lucky for us, the closest craft brewery was a somewhat big one at the time, which is Firestone Walker. And so, you know, we'd go down to the pizza place and get pitchers and pizzas and, you know, we could get double barrel ale. Um, and, you know, as Firestone Walker grew, kind of we got more of their um, offerings. So that pointed us in the right direction. Alex also had a nice trip out to a new Belgian brewing company uh, before he really was, was diving into craft beer. So a couple of the, you know, old stalwarts of craft beer really... Uh, Turned us over to the to the light when we were in college. All right. Um, now uh, this is my favorite question. Omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. Uh, wow. Omitting the word. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, this is everybody's favorite question. Okay, brewing philosophy. I think. <laughs> you know, I'm just searching for synonyms now. We want we want to make beer that's very interesting, but also very drinkable. So I know that's maybe synonymous with the balance thing, but you know, a, a beer. I think that's the best beer you can get, where you drink it and it makes you think or react in a way that you didn't expect. Which is, you know, you guys been drinking beer for a long time. It's hard with every, you know, you get all these craft breweries, drink all these new beers. How many of them actually surprise you? You know, at this point, it's not that many. So we like to take chances, um, but take them in the context of let's make sure someone wants a second glass of this beer. All right, well, so leading off of the taking chances part, because I think you definitely are, are doing some interesting things here. What's the most unusual beery thing that you've ever done? The unusual beer thing. So. Making a beer or mm-hmm. just anything? Yeah, ma- making a beer, uh, uh, chugging a uh, chugging a pitcher of, of your beer. No, making a beer. Since we are brewers, making beer. Um, then, I mean, so I've worked at the brewery, which you know we made hundreds of beers, and they all had crazy weird ingredients. Now coming to start an all sour brewery, all barrel aged, all sour beer. I'm kind of numb to like very like everything has been experimental, but maybe the craziest thing we made a kaffir lime leaf and galangal root black beer at the brewery mm-hmm. um, called Gunga Galunga. <laughs> and any uh, any Caddyshack fans will will uh, like that name as as I am. So that's a that's a that was a good one. I liked how the kind of acidity that came out of the the lime leaf and the kind of the galangal root is almost like ginger or sour kind of thing with the black beer. It's such an interesting beer. Um, I'm not sure how well it did in sales, but it was, that was one of the craziest beers I think I ever made. Just cause I had never heard of the ingredients before. And here, here at Rare Barrel? I think I can pick another one like that because we made a beer called Soliloquy, which is a beer made with rose hips and sweet orange peel and the only reason we had rose hips here was because i bought every spice from our spice company um made tinctures out of them 
So got a bunch of spices, some sky vodka, and some mason jars, and just extracted the flavor from all of them. I pour a glass of kind of like a golden sour, the base of the like this beer you guys are drinking now, and then we just eyedropper into each one and kind of see, hey, does this work? Um, because then we can uh, put these ingredients into the oak barrels to kind of mimic what we're getting from these tinctures. And we had these rose hips, which are like the fruit from a rose bush, I guess. You know, I didn't know that much about it before. I still don't really know that much about it, to be honest. But it just had this brilliant orangey flavor, and we just supplemented it with a little bit of the sweet orange peel. And that beer, we just uh, tapped it uh, just yesterday or the day before because we are going to serve some kegs out of our cellar. And it is like drinking orange crush, like just soda, but with that tartness and dryness that makes you want to keep drinking it. So, you know, using an ingredient like rose hips, something I had never heard of and have not really heard of since, it turned out to be a great beer. And uh, I think it's one of our highest rated beers to date so far. So, so when, when you get an idea or decide you're going to make a beer like that, and do you start from the ingredient side and try and figure out what you can do with the ingredient, or do you start thinking about the flavors in the finished beer and work backwards? That's a great question, because I think that maybe goes to our brewing philosophy more than that yammering I was doing earlier. Basically, we have three base recipes, gold, red, and dark. That's all we brew work-wise, um, for the most part, 95%. Uh, we take those base uh, grain bills and warts and that we know very well and then we fluctuate fermentations like crazy that's all we do is set up each each batch is a new setup of an experiment not knowing what the hell is going to come on the other end so three six nine months down the line we taste them we take stock and we say this is what actually happened and then we take those kind of flavor assets and we try to match them with finished product ideas so ingredients blends spices fruits so we make you know a beer with right now we're making a a beer with saison dupont and uh, also in the primary fermentation is actually barrel aged beer as the inoculant it's got uh, bread dray and uh, pedicacus damnosis so right now the dupont has stalled out at about nine (laughs) play-doh it's a 12 play-doh beer and so the rest is going to get finished up with the Dre and the PDO. I have no idea what that's going to taste like. But if it comes out that, man, this really has this like kind of stone fruit background, maybe it'd be a better base for the beer you guys are drinking right now, Map of the Sun, Golden Sour with Apricot. And the idea is we want to make the best apricot sour there is, the best raspberry sour, the best cherry sour. And all these different fermentation experiments are getting us one step closer to being able to apply, hey, this fermentation can really support this flavor in this beer. We just had some beers that came out that, for one reason or another, just taste like apple pie, like peach, but it's very pie-like. And we have a beer called Home Sour Home, which is a golden sour with peach, cinnamon, and vanilla bean, kind of like a peach cobbler sour. But now that we made this base, we are like, whoa, this would be an awesome base for this kind of peach cobbler beer. And so now we're trying to make that even better for the next year. We like how it was last year, but 
these things we learn along the way kind of inform how the finished product will turn out. It's really exciting. So it kind of starts off by chance, and then once you see where things are going, then you think about what can go with that to enhance it more. Absolutely. It's kind of... Chance is a good word, but I would say informed chance. Yeah, like we're right, trying sure. to make something good without knowing what the actual quality will be. You know, hopefully it's good. We're going to make you, it the right way. But you have an idea of what direction you're you're taking it in. I mean, it's like it's not totally random. You know that before when you did this, you got something kind of like that. So yeah, it's only eighty-seven percent random. Okay. I'd say. <laughs> Cool. Just remember, as as we've been fond of quoting Adam Savage, who said that the only difference between you know screwing around and science is writing it down. Yeah. This is the exact same thing. You're just now screwing around with flavor and writing it down and turning it into. We're absolutely sense. screwing around, and we're writing a lot of stuff down. That's that's you know because we make beer that sits around forever. We're not pumping out IPAs on a daily basis. We spend all of our time about like basically looking forward at what we can do better and looking back to learn from what we just did. Really, that's like, that's 90% of what we work on and the actual decision of, oh, let's try this fermentation. That doesn't take very long, but it's all the note-taking. We have gravity readings every 10 days with temperature, pH, sensory notes um, going back from the start of the company. We have every inoculant on every single oak barrel. You walk out there, you'll see an oak barrel. If there's seven different yeast and bacteria they're all written on there and every yeast and bacteria that had been in that barrel previously for the last three years so if we get a flavor out of something that we like we want to be able to trace back to everything that we've done it seems like that would lead to some really complex uh, incantations and formulations in order to recreate things. Welcome to the rare barrel. <laughs> <laughs> so now, have you guys ever had a, an experience where you captured like a mythical moment like that you know, sort of, the clouds have opened up, the sun is shining down. You know, you found you found a perfect thing, and have then since struggled to get back to that exact same thing. Or are you, do you have a consistency now? I'd say we try to be consistent, but we're we're so young and learning so much so fast that I feel like we're inconsistent because we're improving. At least I'd like to think we're improving. The way you're, you're grasping for uh, you're grasping for improvement. You yeah, fumble a bit. But it's constantly in that direction. Yeah, you may go a little right or left, but <laughs> forward is the direction, no matter what. Um, yeah, I don't know if we've struggled to recreate, but the the, the lightning in a bottle moment was I can certainly comment on that, which is some of our first beers we ever made. We made a, a red sour beer and a dark sour beer, or a black uh, sour beer, and they were pretty extreme apart. But we did a blend together, and we added raspberries to them. And this is, I mean, we were about four months old at the time. These beers were four four months old as well. And the result was just so, so good. And we're just like, wow, this is, this is like a really good sour beer. We did it. We made a good sour beer. And uh, we submitted that beer to World Beer Cup, and it won gold for American Sour. The first competition ever. And it was just like... It, it was, uh, of course, that was extremely exciting, and we were so proud. But it was also validation of that excitement that we had those all those months earlier. And uh, since then, it's won again. It won uh, silver at Great American Beer Festival. And uh, that, that beer is in Sorcelled. It's our dark sour with uh, raspberries. I've had that a few times, and that's a very tasty beer. 
Thank you. I can, I can, to- I can totally see that being a, a lightning in a bottle type moment. It was, it was, it was just like that lightning, but it was just, it just struck us out of nowhere, and we were like, "Whoa, whoa we did, we did something good." Okay. <laughs> no, that's always one of my favorite moments as a brewer. Like you, you go and you taste it, and you're like, "I think I did something right." Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. I did something right. It's a really exciting moment. <laughs> All right. So uh, now, given that you guys have the the sour beer, and like you said, you obsessively writing down and tracking everything. Yeah. Uh, what sort of common wisdom, like the common perceived wisdom of brewing uh, and practices, do you see as being either incorrect or people's concerns about it are overinflated? Ooh, excellent question. So I think the the way to make the the most common way to make sour beer is misunderstood. I think uh, you know Vinny from Russian River has done such a great job with sharing his methods that I think everyone tries to copy that, but the fundamental difference that I don't think is well understood is the strength of the culture, the inoculant at Russian River, versus the strength of the culture that you buy at your homebrew shop. Extremely different. I mean, you guys know that you get a new pitch of, or vial, or smack pack of, you know, whatever it's going to be, 001, Saison, English Ale. That first generation, especially if you don't do a starter, is, you know, it's going to finish a little higher. It's not going to pop as much. It's just not going to be the best beer that that yeast could make. Take that philosophy and apply it to wild yeast and bacteria that are not meant to make beer at all. So you, you almost kind of need to make five rounds of starters and make one gallon of beer before you can even hope to make a good five-gallon batch of sour beer. So go ahead, ferment your beer with whatever Saccharomyces strain, Saison, Belgian yeast, English ale, whatever you want. And then when you add your sour inoculant in a secondary fermentation, just make sure that it's strong and already producing an acidic beer, or else how can you expect it to sour five gallons? So what people do is they throw in you know, the Rosalaire blend after they rack off their Belgian uh, five-gallon primary, and then three months in, they taste it, it's not sour. Six months, nine months, a year, not sour. Okay, well, I've heard that, you know, sour beer takes a long time to age. That's a misconception. Acidity does not take a long time to create. The off flavors and kind of rough edges of sour beer fermentation from microbes which are not meant to make beer, that takes a long time to smooth out. So it's not that it takes a long time to produce acid. You can produce acid very quickly. It just takes a long time to smooth out those rough edges of a sour beer. Um, and if you are waiting, you know, three years to produce your acid, you're not producing lactic acid. You're producing acetic acid, which is not bad in a sour beer in small amounts. But if you're aging it that long, that's what's giving you the acidity in your beer, and it won't taste as good. Yeah, I've definitely had more than a few... Uh, both commercial and homebrews, where the primary characteristics been acetic, and you're just like, like a little acetic, not not like I'm eating, you know, fish and chips and yeah. put my brown sauce on it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and it's interesting because it sounds like you were starting to see more and more people write up articles about like you know doing sort of fast lacto uh, ferments. Yeah, you know, generating a lot of lactic acid very quickly. You know, hey, look, I turned a balloon rice around in three weeks, mm-hmm. type of thing, and getting very clean fermentation. So it's almost like 
it seems like what we're really waiting for is to get that moment when people can figure out how to sort of shortcut that back-end aging process that you talked about, like getting some of those other other side effects cleaned up, like uh, how everybody always used to talk about, like mead taking forever, right? But it turns mm-hmm. out, like, if you do staggered ne- nutrient additions, mead is a relatively quick thing. Yeah. You know, so who knows? Maybe it's waiting for somebody to discover, like, the magic to turn off those little <laughs> off flavors that we wait that we wait to get rid of. I'd say that's what we're doing here. It's not, it's not really we're trying to cut down on the time per se, although, I mean, obviously that, that would be great if sour mm-hmm. beer didn't take as long. But it's more that, you know, I was just talking about this earlier today in my meeting right before you guys got here, is that, you know, we'll have a batch of beer, maybe our average time from brew to release is 10 or 11 months. We'll have a batch of beer come out in seven months one time, and it tastes great, you know. We're not rushing it. It's just that good. But for every one of those, there's two that go past, you know, the average. And it's like, oh, there's like a light sulfur or, oh, this is this diacetyl going to clean up? Or it's just, what is this flavor? I don't know. There's a ton of that. Because, again, you're talking about compounds being created that aren't researched. You know, you know all the compounds from Saccharomyces fermentation because there's money in from the big brewers who research this. You know, you can – and there's tons of books – where are the sour beer books? There's what? Two, three maybe. You know, where are the people like you guys who are talking about experimental brewing? Well, right. there's only a handful of us. And, I mean, we're all in the same room now talking to each other. So <laughs> <laughs> hopefully people are listening and they, they understand that this is, sour beer is not well known, what, what is happening in it. So, you know, just get out there, get as much information as you can, but experiment because home brewers are just as much on the forefront of learning more about sour beer as professional brewers, maybe even more so. Well, and, and home brewers have the the luxury to be able to do what you're doing to maybe even a greater extent because you guys don't have a, a production schedule that I can see. You let the beer tell you when mm-hmm. it's when it's ready to go. Yeah. And and home brewers are in an even better position to do that, you know, to, to just pay attention to the beer and and it's done when the beer tells you it's done. Absolutely, you know, and you know, this is there are concerns that happen in a business that don't happen at home. Right. I don't. I don't like when I hear it's like, oh, you know, you're at home, just dump it. You know, no big deal. You don't have to sell it. You know, homebrewers don't feel that way. It's like <laughs> you put all this time. There's an investment of your time in there and the cost of all of the ingredients and everything that goes along with it. So, you know, I don't think it's as simple as, you know, oh, if you don't make it well, dump it. I just think it's you know, invest even more time before you start your sour beer program at home learning than you would, oh, I'm going to make a brown ale this weekend, so I'm going to look up some recipes, and then I'll be good by Saturday. It's not like that, you know? (laughs) Look into it for a few months, get comfortable with it, find someone else who's made a good sour beer that you like, and chat chat them up. So, I mean, it sounds a little bit like, hey, get some apprenticeship in there. Get some uh, some time and some study. Absolutely. Um, And, yeah, to the point about, yeah, you know, like, yeah. Homebrewers don't have the same sort of commercial cost that like a business does, or the same sort of commercial demands that a business does. But you can't tell me that there isn't sort of an emotional toll to that thing of like, but now I have to dump this because like I know I've I've ended up having to to discard some sour beer that went way horribly nowhere that anybody should drink. Uh, and at the end of the day, I was literally bereft because I've been so excited about ooh, this is my special project beer, yay! And then it went. Sayonara. Yeah, and that that's that common thing that I was saying. The common it may not have happened to you, but 
one thing that does happen is that you don't get that acidity, maybe your first sour beer, and you're aging it so long, and you just get so attached. It's like, one day this is going to be great. But really, it's it's just not working well. So to dump like a three-year-old beer becomes even more difficult. So as long as people understand that the acidity is what can happen quick, and the mellowing out of flavors is what Brett will do over time, you know, I think that's a it's a good mindset to have when you're understanding your sour beer. And by the way, I've done plenty of sour beer here too. Lots, lots and lots yeah. and lots. So it's not like if you make a bad sour beer, you're bad at making sour beer. It's like, by the way, everyone's bad at making sour beer. It's hard to make. It's so, unpredictable. Yeah, we're dumping terrible beer all the time. So it sounds like, just to recap uh, for the listeners, your advice is produce acid quickly. You know, or expect acid production quickly. If you're not, I'll, I'll rephrase that into, if you're not getting acid in the first three to six months, then your bacteria weren't strong enough. And so and that leads into the next point, which is before you try and go into a bigger batch, get your bacteria nice and strong in starter batches, you know, smaller, smaller volumes. Yeah, taste so, your 500 milliliter flask. If it doesn't taste sour or good, why, why would you put it into a larger one? See, and, and this this is one of the things that bugs me about getting when you get the commercial cultures that you can as a home brewer. You know, one they come with lower cell counts and lesser volume, and it's like more expensive. And then everybody's like, "Oh yeah, no, just pitch it." I'm like, going, they, that, "No, you know, I, I need more." You know, then maybe I'm obsessive, but I want more critters yep. in there to do the thing. And and yeah, I mean that seems to play exactly into what you're talking about. It's like, you know, it's even worse than like the. What's the usual rule? Seven generations with a commercial culture from mm-hmm. a fresh pitch to optimum fermentation. Now yep. with sours, we're talking the same sort of thing, but people actually need to do that as opposed to just pitch it and forget it. Yeah. One more tip just on this subject real quick is uh, taking the dregs from commercially available sour beers. There's a list on Michael Tonsmeyer's website, mm-hmm. The Mad Fermentationist. But he's got a list of you know bottles that if you buy or you see it at a bottle share, you know, swirl up the bottom of it and put it in some wort or keep a one-gallon carboy on hand, those are going to be better yeast and bacteria than anything you can buy and try and grow up on your own. This is from commercial breweries who have all the resources to get them to these advanced generations. Just take it from them. It's so easy. It's, you know, good, like good, good brewer's bar, great brewer's steel. Yes. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the kind of the contrapositive version of that question I asked me you know, before we said, you know, what com- common wisdom do you think is wrong or is overinflated? The other side of the fence, what common wisdom do you think that people don't actually pay enough attention to or common practice? Mm-hmm. Um, keeping oxygen out of the aging process. Keeping oxygen out of the aging process is critically important to the two main off flavors of sour beer, one being ethyl acetate or a nail polish kind of aroma and acetic acid, which is like a vinegar taste to your beer. Uh, Those two things will be in every sour beer. So it's not like their existence is the end of the world. They're there no matter what. It's just what is the threshold? You know, how how much have they grown over time? You don't want to be able to smell nail polish. That's high amounts. In low amounts, it's more perfume. Acetic acid can be just a nice, sharp dryness to a sour beer. But it, too much, I think everyone knows what vinegar tastes like. So mm-hmm. um, the key to that is keeping oxygen out. So notice what, you know, on a homebrew scale, notice what your long-term storage vessel is. How high are you filling it up? You know, do you, okay, you have a glass carboy. That's a great vessel. But 
you know, fill it up to the tip top, the shoulder, you know, leave a little room for expansion. Um, but, you know, the less surface area to the air, the better. You need to take a sample, flush it with CO2. I know, you know, that's not available to in every home brewer seller, but it's Most critical. Of them will have it around. Yeah, critical yeah, just to make it sour beer. Sours. So, um, you know, just keep keep that in mind. Purge the vessel you're transferring into. Um, use CO2 as a weapon against oxygen. Because just because you have a pellicle, just because there's a long secondary fermentation in there doesn't mean you're protected against oxygen being harmful to your sour beer. So, so in other words, actually really kind of take notice of what winemakers do. Because winemakers mm-hmm. do a lot of the exact same stuff. Yep. Because they, they they have those giant concerns about acetobacter for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. So, all right, good. Keg, keg is a great vessel, too, for yeah. souring, yeah. If, if you're willing to dedicate it. All right. So the uh, the standard brewer's question that you always have to ask, favorite malt, hop, and yeast? Well, I've never heard of hops. I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, malt... So for sour beer, I get. I mean, I, you know, I've made other beers, so I have different favorites for those mm-hmm. other styles. But for sour beer, I enjoy spelt malt, which is not something that a lot of people use. It's kind of like part of the wheat family, but I like to describe it as a less wheaty wheat. Um, high percentages of wheat in a lot. There, there are high percentages of wheat in a lot of sour beer recipes. It's a personal preference that I just kind of find it to give off this little bit of like a dirty, earthy flavor. I don't think everyone gets that, but I've usually gotten uh, ham. Ham, well, that's yeah, that's no good. Yeah, but uh, spelt is kind of like a dialed back version of wheat, um, but contributes a lot of the same thing. So I'm a big spelt fan. Um, yeast. I mean, Britannomyces, right? You gotta say it. <laughs> do, do you have a particular uh, favorite? Child of Britannomyces? I like the uh, Brett from Dre Fontainen that is actually Britannomyces, not the one that's a wild Not, not the Brettois. Uh, uh, um, we use that a ton here. It's, a, it's an excellent uh, primary and secondary fermenter. It may not give off the same level of aromatics that, you know, maybe a Brux or a Lampicus will. Um, but what I like about Brett is that it's, it's the new frontier of brewing in that you know, there's only a few kind of variations out there that are commercially available, but within 10 years, I think there's going to be about 200, and that's super exciting. Uh, and, the, and the reason why I asked for the specifics is I think there's been a very long tendency of people to say, oh, I like Brett, as if Brett were like some sort of monocultural thing, mm-hmm. whereas, yeah, it, exactly to your point, fairly soon, and right now people are discovering that, no, 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 there's as many different varieties of Brett, if not more, than Saccharomyces, so... Just like Saccharomyces strains have different characteristics to the Brits. I think there are two jobs that are really going to influence the way beer tastes over the next 10 to 20 years. One is the hop farmer, and two is the microbiologist. It's the greatest impact on flavor is new hop varieties, and then maybe even greater impact is new yeast and how to use that. I mean, what drives flavor in beer more than fermentation? So microbiologists developing new strains that's going to be a big uh, a big deal cool what is something you wish uh, people would drink more of or explore uh, other than rare barrel beer well they could be joining me and drinking more English cask beer that's right. uh, my favorite style I, I would not I would not argue with that at all <laughs> 
right. Um, favorite flavors? In general? Mm-hmm. Favorite flavors? Um, cookie dough? <laughs> so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think you've heard this here first. Expect to see a cookie dough rare barrel sour beer. There you go. <laughs> Cookies right in the oak barrel. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other thoughts about brewing that you'd like to share? Um, I, th- I, you know, I encourage people to try to make a sour beer. Try and make one gallon of sour beer. I know it can be really intimidating, but the next time you brew kind of your favorite malty beer just nothing with a lot of hops in it just take a gallon of it off when you're done put it into a one gallon carboy and be building up your you know flask of dregs from commercial beers and then just toss that in there and then if you have that one gallon it turns out good then you can make five gallons it can it can be that easy um so don't don't be intimidated you know you can do it all right and the last question uh, well, we've already talked about cookie dough, but uh, what non-beer thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with? Uh, football. <laughs> okay. <Ooh. laughs> well, well, unfortunately, I'm a 49ers fan. But, uh, no, I just like all all of football, and I would say it has reached the level of obsession. So that's what I do on Sundays all day, watching football. I listen to football podcasts. So it's just like... Fifty percent of my life is sour beer. Fifty percent is football. Uh, are, are you doing the the daily fantasy games? I used to, and then my account ran out of money for some reason, so I had <laughs> to see how that works. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jay. We really appreciate this, man. This was great. Some really good insights there. Uh, and uh, by all means, I would encourage everybody uh, go and check out the Sour Hour. And if you get an opportunity, you'll usually be able to find it by the line if you're ever at a festival where they're at. <laughs> Try some of the rare barrel beer. You'll you'll really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. So that was uh, some remarkably cool advice from Jay Goodwin. And uh, believe me, Jay knows his stuff. Uh, as he pointed out, he's the host of the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. And uh, the beers speak for themselves. Uh, the, the map of the sun that we were drinking was just outstanding. So. Anyway. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually sitting here looking at my bottle of Map of the Sun that Jay gave us as we went away, uh, really sorely tempted by the idea of breaking into it, but I'm holding on to it. Yeah, well, I, I promised my wife I'd share it, so I'm I'm waiting for the right time when she's in the mood for a, a sour beer. So uh, next time around, we will bring you uh, an interview with uh, Sully. Sean O'Sullivan from 21st Amendment uh, showed us around his playground, uh, drank some great beers there, and we'll also play a little bit of a uh, homebrew tasting that we did while we were at More Beer that uh, kind of turned into more than we had expected. Yeah, it was a very active tasting, I think, is the way to put uh, yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. We'll be right back to uh, try to answer some listener questions. <laughs> Questions, questions, questions. Our listeners have questions, and we just may have some answers. So, Drew, what's question number one? All right, question number one comes from uh, David Yule of Thousand Oaks, California. 
He says, I would like to know how long can you keep a package of white yeast or white labs and still be able to make a decent starter out of it? So I have my answer to that, which is I've done this with packages that are, eh, I think about the oldest I've ever done is a little over a year and a half. I got you beat. I got you beat, buddy. I did three and a half years on a package of Y East thirty seven eighty seven. Why didn't you just go buy a fresh packet? It's not a rare Uh, one. (laughs) No, it's it's not. Uh, It was out of date at the homebrew shop. He gave it to me, and then it sat in my refrigerator for a couple years before I found it. It was a challenge. What can I say? Well, yeah, it's either a challenge or you're just being cheap. No, it was a challenge. Uh, So, but what do the experts have to say? Well, okay. I, now, I never heard back from anybody at, at Y-Yeast, but uh, I did talk to Nava Parker from uh, White Labs, and uh, Nava, of course, is the maven of all things yeasty at White Labs and uh, director of lab operations, I think is her actual title, and a font of wisdom and knowledge. And she came back, and we talked specifically about White Labs' new uh, pure pitch uh, technology where they've gotten rid of the – or they're phasing out the vials – and moving to these pouches that allow them to kind of do all-in-one fermentation propagation and sterile packaging uh, with minimal handing, handling of the yeast. And on their old vials, they had, I think it was a 50% viability at six months. Uh, according to Neva, her, the new Pure Pitch uh, pouches have a 75% viability at six months. And that's about as long as she actually recommends to take it and make a starter out of it. Uh, now, of course, that's from her point of view as uh, somebody who's working for the company and wants to make sure the company products are you know, shining in the best light. But if you're really good about making a starter, and particularly as you get into older uh, patches, uh, packages of yeast, making a small starter, like starting with, say, a cup and stepping up over a couple of days, then I think you can stretch it out further. Like I said, I've done about a, a little over a year and a half. Denny's done three plus some odd ancient years of yeast yeah, and legend. I, and I I did exactly what you're saying, man. I started off with uh, two cups of wort, uh, stepped it up to like uh, two quarts after that. And then uh, I think maybe I did one more step up after that. It wasn't your uh, classic 10 to 1 step up ratio that uh, supposedly you're supposed to use. But hey, it worked. It made a great triple. And so that's really the, the the long and the short of it is I, I say about a year and a half is probably best. The experts say uh, a half a year. Uh, and Denny says, uh, who cares? Just get a well, single cell. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really recommend doing that. It was it was basically more of an experiment than anything else. So uh, basically, I would say you're always better off to use yeast that's as fresh as possible. But if you get stuck with some that isn't there's a way you can save it. There you go. So our next question comes from Jason Hammond of Jamestown, Ohio. Jason wants to know, how do you propose that homebrewers approach brewing when looking for making a recipe repeatable? That is, taste and look the same when brewed at different times. Well, Jason... Well, this, is, uh, this is your, this is your, your specialty. Yeah, this is not man. my specialty. It it is it's it's like the old joke about uh, you know how do you get to Carnegie Hall practice 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 it's the same thing with making a beer repeatable brew 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 and take really good notes if your strike temperature is say five degrees short of what you want uh, brew that beer again raise your strike water five degrees the next time and see if that fixes it you know. Um, 
and then once you get it, then brew it exactly the same over and over and over again. Don't be tempted to change anything. Don't say, well, you know, maybe this time I'll do this instead of that. Don't do that. <laughs> Just brew it exactly the same until you know that you can do it. Uh, many people, like Drew, say that that's a boring way to brew. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, here's an example. Uh, about a week ago, I uh, kicked the keg of uh, my American brown ale, No Tie Brown. I love that beer. I love the recipe. And the day that the keg kicked, my first thought was, I need to brew more of that. And that's exactly what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. I'll be brewing another batch exactly identical to the last one. So, you know, making a repeatable beer basically comes down to practice and notes so that if it's not exactly repeatable one time, you know what the differences were so you can correct for that the next time. That's all there is to it. And, and I would argue, I mean, as much as I joke about, you know, it's boring to repeat the same beer again and again and again. Uh, to me, I think the real, uh, the real key of it is knowing your system. And that comes down to brewing on it repeatedly. So even though I joke about, you know, I don't care about repeating my beers, I know exactly what I have to do on the gear I have and the conditions I have to be able to get to, the, say, the exact same mash temperatures or the exact same uh, volumes of beer coming out the other side. Uh, some people are more persnickety about it, and, and that persnickiness is how you really get to repeatability. So to the practice angle, absolutely, and that's even useful if you're not the kind of guy who's looking to repeat a beer every time. Yeah, that's right. Okay, next question, Drew. All right, question number three today comes from Jeff Stiebel of Pinellas County, Florida, a.k.a. just outside of Tampa. I'm currently brewing a milk stout in which I added a tincture of pasilla chilies, cinnamon, nutmeg, vanilla, and co- cocoa nibs. Upon transferring to keg and carving, I found that the flavor profile wasn't as strong as I'd like it to be. My question is, can I add a muslin bag of extra spices to the keg to boost the flavor? And if so, how would I go about adding it? Sanitization, bag, and a tincture? Uh, Good question, and definitely right up my alley. So the last one was Denny's, this one's mine. Uh, So, uh, one, uh, that is a hell of a combination of things. It sounds like you're going really kind of for a... Um, mole dessert beer. I would say that since he's in Florida, it could be Hunapoo inspired. More than likely. Uh, and speaking of which, that reminds me, I got to go get the bottle of Hunapoo that's sitting behind me at some point. So, in terms of how you can add those extra flavors, uh, you totally could do them in a bag and throw them in the keg and essentially just treat them like they're hops. Uh, I think by the point in time that you're talking about with an imperial stout or, uh, sorry, a milk stout, like uh, you're talking about here that's fully fermented. I don't think you're going to have to worry all that much about sanitation. Uh, if it really bugs you, go and throw them in a, a pot of boiling water for a little bit in the bag and then throw the bag in the keg. My preferred method, just from the fact that I don't want to have to deal with transferring in case the spices get too strong or worry about uh, you know, any sort of critters right in, I'll do a tincture. Uh, I'll either do one of my speed tinctures that I do in my whipping siphon. Uh, you can find notes on that in Experimental Brew. Or... I'll do just a, a mason jars of tinctures. Denny's been in my garage where the brewery is, and he's seen the giant buckets of different flavor additions that I have. Yeah, very impressive. I'll just make these ahead of time, and you know, when something comes around and the beer has some sort of character that I think it's missing, or I get struck by a great idea of something to do, I have the parts on hand to be able to make the changes that I need. M- a muslin bag in the keg, fine. 
uh, but be prepared, take tastes of it regularly, say starting at a week out. And if it gets too strong uh, or it's verging too, too strong, remove the beer from the spices. Uh, depending upon how you want to do that, some people will tie the keg or tie the bag to the lid or pass the string through the lid so that they can catch it uh, and just pull the bag. Or you transfer out of the keg, which is arguably the cleaner way of doing it. Or you do the tincture route. And tinctures, to me, are the thing I prefer. But remember, I always argue and talk about the fact that you get a different flavor out of a tincture than you do out of something that's been uh, added in uh, to the beer and soaked for a while or been made into a tea. And tinctures are certainly uh, more controllable in that you you can add a bit, taste it add a bit more, you know, uh, when you put something into the boil or into the keg, you have to really be careful about, uh, about the contact time. Tinctures are easy to, uh, to get the right amount. So we have a question here from Chris Richer of Bend, Oregon, uh, kind of like up in my neck of the woods. Uh, this is an easy one. He wants to know who's a, be- a better experimental brewer, Denny or Drew? Well, I'm going to like hedge right now and say, it all depends on what the meaning of experimental is. Uh, I would dare say that uh, maybe I am better when it comes to designing an experiment to investigate an idea, but when it comes to experimental in terms of putting together uh, unusual flavors and ingredients in a beer, I can't hold a candle to Drew, uh, nor do I know if I want to. Well, I was going to say, you've just been offended <laughs> by my most recent idea. Uh, uh, Fluffernutter fluffer beer. Fluffer beer. Who the hell wants a Fluffernutter beer? If you're out there, you want a Fluffernutter beer, raise your hand. See, I don't see, see? any hands, Drew. No, that's because uh, you're blind I still don't old. see any hands. Okay, well, that's uh, no, But, uh, but I'll, I'll totally agree with Denny. I, 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 have, I have the realms of things I like to experiment about, and they're almost all flavor-oriented. So, for instance, my Saison Yeast Guide, uh, that's experimental much more in the sense of how Denny's doing things, but it still really is my focus is on the flavor and not so much on process and procedure. So it comes down to a sort of a, a different sort of personality type uh, and really that the multiplicity of meanings behind the word experimental. Yeah. That, and that's very true, man. Uh, that's, that's what it's all about. That's what our book experimental homebrewing was all about, both the wacky side and the science side. So well, uh, it's the wackiness of beer science and the science of beer wackiness. What he said. So I guess that that means that the answer to that question is we're both better, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except for, you know, let's face it, really, I'm younger and cuter. Well, <laughs> so you say. Okay, we'll be right back to wrap up the show with our quick tip and our personal things other than beer recommendation. <laughs> Yeah, we're back, and we have our quick tip of the week. This week it's coming from me, and it's really quick, and it's really easy. If you're using a pump to move your beer around, uh, every once in a while it's a really good idea to take that head off the pump, break it down, and thoroughly clean and sanitize the inside of the pump. Uh, Being lazy, I don't do this as often as I should, and... uh, I have to admit that I have opened up my pump to find little green fuzzy stuff growing in there, and you don't want to do that. So keep it in mind, every once in a while, 
take that pump apart, clean it out. You may be doing it already, but if you're not doing it, you should be, right? Yeah, well, I'll actually toss on an ancillary hint onto that, or an ancillary tip, uh, which is one of the ways to stop green fuzzies, or at least uh, slow down the likelihood of green fuzzies, is whenever you're done using your pump, uh, use any CO2 that you have on hand to actually blow the pump out. You know, a lot of people just kind of let the pump sort of manually drain, uh, drain, which will get a lot of the liquid out, but it won't get everything out. And so to me, one of the best things you can do is go and blast some CO2 through that pump, and it will really drive out a lot of moisture, and that, that will really help. That's a great idea, man. I don't have a CO2 tank out in the brewery, but I do have one of those little keg charger things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could do the same thing with that. So thanks for Absolutely. the tip, buddy. That's what I'm going to be doing. So uh, believe it or not, we do things other than make beer, not many and not very often because we're boring people, but we do that. And what I'm going to tell you about is my passion other than beer, and it's the ukulele. I mean, if there are any of you out there who have been guitar players in the past, uh, even if you haven't, the ukulele is fun. It's just damn fun. That's all there is to it. You pull out a ukulele, and people start smiling and laughing. Or running in terror. Well, yeah, that too. And, but, and the smiling and laughing isn't always just because of the way you play. The ukulele just makes people happy. So there you go. That's my suggestion this week. Make the world happy. Play the ukulele. <laughs> well, hey, do, do you have a recommendation for a ukulele? Well, there, there are um, lots of good brands out there, and none of them are very expensive. I, I will make a couple recommendations about size of ukulele, because that's something I didn't know when I bought it. The smallest one is a soprano uke. Next up is a concert uke, and that's what I uh, started with. Uh, and... Uh, I found that my huge bass player fingers were actually not fitting. So I just picked up a a tenor ukulele uh, made by Ohana. Beautiful tone. The neck's a little bit longer, so your fingers fit in there better. So if you're a fat finger like me, uh, maybe look at a tenor. Uh, You could even go for a baritone. One of the cool things about a baritone uke is it's tuned the same way as a guitar. So if you can play the guitar, then you don't have to learn anything else. On the other hand, if uh, you're buying a uke for your kid or you have small hands, take a look at the concert size. I think that that uh, would make you a lot happier. Well, and I'll, I'll add one other thing about, you know, I joked earlier about how the ukulele makes people run away. But I've actually seen, like, real positive effects from the ukulele. A friend of mine runs a project called the Survivor Girl Ukulele Project, where she goes over to India uh, a couple times a year and treats, uh, teaches survivors of the sex trade in India how to play the ukulele as a form of musical therapy. That is so cool. It, I know. And it, it's like, oh man, it's like such an old school uh, hippie type thing to do. And it's so wonderful that she does it. So if you, if you want to support the fine art of the ukulele without actually playing yourself and terrorizing your own neighbors, uh, consider looking and giving a donation to the survivor girl ukulele project. Right. And keep in mind, you don't have to play Hawaiian music. If you have a ukulele, I mean, you, you don't know what terror is until you've heard me do Pinball Wizard on the ukulele. I, I'm holding out for Black Sabbath. <laughs> the, the Iron Man on the uke. Hmm, boy, I could do that. So, Okay, Drew, wrap it up. Our question of the week is, uh, are you all set for experimenting with us? Uh, it's time to get your experiment on, and so let us know what you think and what experiments you want us to help with. 
Get involved with the Igor Project. You can send us emails at igor at experimentalbrew.com or po- uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com uh, if you have ideas for experiments or want to get involved. Uh, if you have questions or criticisms of our experimental technique, uh, feel free to send those to go to hell at experimentalbrew.com <laughs> or podcast at experimentalbrew.com. We will take your criticisms. We are not immune to it. Uh, and then uh, just for our conclusions about what we did this week, uh, we've talked about the decline of homebrewing and what you, yes, you, Mr. Podcast listener or Mrs. Podcast listener, need to do to help stem the decline of homebrewing. Uh, we've also talked a little bit about experimentation and what to do, whether or not White Labs 001 and YEast 1056 are going to be the same. Look for the results coming soon. Go to experimentalbrew.com for more details on the experiment. Uh, we talked a little bit about ukuleles. We talked a lot about some great sour beer with Jay Goodwin. And we even talked about how to disassemble or keep your pump from getting fuzzy. So don't forget, get involved. Igor at experimentalbrew.com, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you have a charity suggestion for any of our extra funds, send those to podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And that's it for this week. Thanks a bunch for joining this week on the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Experimental Brew, on Facebook, on Instagram, or uh, any other kind of social media that Drew uh, gets it into his head to get onto. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can email each one of us individually at Denny or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until our next episode, remember, brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. We'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. <laughs>